Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, my name is John Torpy, and I'm director of the Ralph Bunch Institute for International Studies at the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. Welcome to International Horizons, a podcast of the Ralph Bunch Institute that addresses a range of issues of significance around the world. Today's topic is the upheavals in Hong Kong. We're fortunate to have with us today Jessica Malbacher, a PhD candidate in political science here at the CUNY Graduate Center, whose doctoral dissertation focuses on recent developments in Hong Kong politics. Thanks for joining us today, Jessica, for today's conversation on International Horizons. It's great to be here. Great to have you. So uh, your dissertation looks at, the, uh, at Hong Kong's struggle for autonomy from Beijing since, since the 1997 handover from British colonial rule. Um, could you tell us about the history of the transition and, and how we got to the acrimony in Hong Kong today? Well, to start out, Britain initially acquired Hong Kong as a, a colony back in 1841 after the Opium War. But interestingly, Britain expanded the territory that it possessed over the next 50 years. So it was able to get more territory in the 1860s. And then finally, in 1898, they were able to lease from the Qing dynasty the new territories, which is the majority of, of what we now think of as being Hong Kong. And this lease was for uh, 99 years. So it was going to end in 1997. In the late 1970s, the British actually wanted to extend the lease and they went to uh, Beijing and they tried to start negotiations about extending the lease. But Deng Xiaoping felt very strongly that even if the Chinese economy was benefiting from having that colony right there and in its um, southern border, that it was very important for the Chinese Communist Party to not support imperialism. And so they uh, very forcefully said they wanted to take the entirety of Hong Kong back. And both the British and the Chinese really wanted to preserve Hong Kong as an international financial center. It was very crucial to both of them. Still to this day, China does not have another financial center quite like Hong Kong. And so what they decided to do in 1984 was sign the Sino-British Joint Declaration, which said that starting in 1997, Hong Kong would have 50 years 
where it would have a capitalist system and have a separate political system where it would be ruled by Hong Kong people. Uh, it would have a chief executive that was was a Hong Konger, a legislative counselor council that would also be filled with Hong Kongers, and that eventually these positions would be elected by would be elected. They would be everybody would get to vote for them. Um, and there would also be freedom of press, freedom of religion, freedom of assembly, etc. Now, what's really important, though, is when Beijing agreed to this in 1984, they were looking at the governance situation of Hong Kong in 1984, when the British were really aligned with this um, very business-oriented community, this community of business leaders who uh, also had extraordinary connections to the mainland and were benefiting from China's reform period. And so China thought that they could co-opt this business elite in Hong Kong and produce stable governance in Hong Kong in a similar way to what the uh, the British colony colonists had done. But, you know, there's a lot of time in between 1984 and 1997. And what happens in the interim is, of course, the Tiananmen Square protests of 1989. And these protests were highly supported by the Hong Kong community. They really supported the student protesters in Beijing. They sent them tents. And when Beijing chose to crack down on the protests, what ended up happening is Hong Kong saw its largest protests in its history, with over a million people coming out into the streets. And so this sets up a dynamic in which the Chinese government becomes very concerned about Hong Kong turning into a bastion of separatism, um, sedition, possibly even leading a movement against the Chinese Communist Party. And so they really want to try to make sure from this point forward that that cannot happen in Hong Kong. And at the same time, they're more and more concerned about Hong Kong security, about forces that are anathema to the Chinese Communist Party using uh, Hong Kong as a base, the British decide to actually really empower and work with the anti-communist pro-democratic forces in Hong Kong. Um, And they actually speed up the democratization of Hong Kong in 1991 and 1995 giving uh, anti-communist pro-democracy legislators opportunities to really be empowered to have a say in legislation. And they do this simply because China had been successful in co-opting a lot of the business forces. So after the handover, we see this dynamic really play out in which the the Chinese uh, Communist Party and Beijing is more and more concerned about Hong Kong and tries to really integrate Hong Kong further into mainland China in order to really ensure that it won't become this uh, base of subversion. And Hong Kong pro-democratic forces trying to fight that every step of the way, oftentimes only increasing the fear of Beijing. So in 2003, pro-democratic forces 
initiate large-scale mobilization against national security laws that are actually mandated under the basic law, Hong Kong's constitution, um, and over 500,000 people participate. And this large amount of participation um, and the fact that there was international outcry against the legislation led even the biz- some of the business groups to actually decide to decouple from the government in that instance, making sure that the legislature the legislation actually failed. So Article 23 was never passed in Hong Kong up until this point, which again just scared the Chinese Communist Party and um, you know the, overall the Chinese government a lot more. So um, this continues through 2014 with the Umbrella Movement where China decides that the only way Hong Kong is going to be able to have universal suffrage is if the pro-Beijing camp, only people that are really handpicked and loyal to Beijing, pick out who will be the next chief executive. So they get to pick three candidates and then everybody can vote on these three options, but it's a choice of vanilla, vanilla bean, and French vanilla. There's no large... um, large panacea of choices there. And so there's another large movement, again, the umbrella movement, where the pan-democratic forces try to pressure both the Hong Kong government and Beijing. Um, And this movement is very embarrassing to China. Uh, And at the same time, this movement actually splits the pro-democratic camp because of its failure. And this is what's really important about that split is that you begin to have an independence movement in Hong Kong and a localist, which is called the localist movement. And the localist movement, some of them say there should be independence for Hong Kong now. And others say, well, at the end of the 50 years, that's when we should have the choice if we want to be independent. But this new separatist uh, group is absolutely abhorrent to Beijing. This was exactly what they feared. And so they, you know, Xi Jinping goes down to Hong Kong and says that this is a red line that cannot be crossed and really orders the Hong Kong government to crack down very hard on this, you know, burgeoning independence localist force. And for the most part, they're successful in 2017 and 2018 in really repressing these localists. But in 2019, the Hong Kong government, thinking that they've been successful, tries to initiate a bill to amend the fugitive ordinance, which would allow for Hong Kongers to be extradited to the mainland for crimes that are committed on the mainland. And this bill sparks a lot of fear among the local community. Uh, And the only people that the government really tries to appease are the business community. They hold a lot of meetings with business leaders and take down the number of laws to only be around 30, where you could be tried for, you could be tried in the mainland for committing these crimes. But, you know, there aren't large scale public consultations about this fugitive amendment ordinance. Uh, the meetings are are very much conscribed. It seems to be being passed really, really fast. And so this leads to widespread outcry in the form of a million people marching 
on June 9th, 9th, 2019. And people were so happy with this march that they crowded around when they were actually trying to pass the legislation on June 12th to try to stop the passing of the legislation. And the crowd that was by the Legislative Council was then tear gassed by the police. And it's really this tear gassing of the protesters and the way that protesters were beaten following this relatively peaceful assembly to try to stop the passing of the legislation that leads to this massive uh, protest campaign that we see over the course of the next six months and is actually continuing um, even today. Uh, because the police violence, the fact that the police said that people were rioting at that rally uh, meant that people could face charges of up to 10 years in prison. People were also really surprised and angry at the level of police violence compared to what was actually happening at the protest. And so they called for an independent inquiry. And it's these requests for an independent inquiry the request for uh, right for the people that have been protesting on June 9th and June 12th to not be considered as rioters that propelled the movement forward, even after the bill to amend the fugitive ordinance was actually taken away. Um, but it also empowered, it re-empowered a lot of the localists. And we now see once again, this rise in um, pro-independence sentiment in Hong Kong and thus, this leads to a reaction once again from Beijing. Great. Thanks for all that uh, helpful background, uh, which, uh, during which you also mentioned Tiananmen Square uh, in 1989 and its significance for the current situation. And I think it might be worth noting that we're um, uh, having this discussion in the immediate aftermath of the commemoration of those events, also very much in Hong Kong itself. Uh, but in any case, uh, in the past few weeks, Beijing has sought to tighten its control over Hong Kong, leading to a whole new round of protests, even if these have not been as large as those of last year. So maybe you could tell us what Beijing has been doing and why this reaction in Hong Kong? Well, ba basically what Beijing decided to do is pass national security legislation. After Tiananmen Square, what Beijing had said is, okay, Hong Kong has to pass national security legislation, but we will allow you to do it. So what was written into the basic law of Hong Kong in Article 23 back in uh, 1990 was Hong Kong has to pass laws on treason, sedition, secession, subversion, and then state secrets. So they had to pass this panacea of law, and they had to limit uh, international influence. Because what Beijing was really concerned about was international forces using Hong Kong against Beijing. But as I said, Hong Kong never passed those laws. After this, the unsuccessful attempt in 2003, no, there were no other attempts. Every once in a while, uh, pro-Beijing politicians would bring it up, but it, it didn't happen. Now, to be fair, there's actually a lot of laws on the books that could be thought of as being part of Article 23. There are laws against treason. There's laws against terrorism. 
There's laws against, um, you know, sharing state secrets. There's an official state secrets ordinance. But at the same time, Article 23 was never passed. And so what Beijing said basically is, you know, we're taking this out of your hands. You know, you've had over 20 years to pass these laws and you haven't done it. So we at the National People's Congress are going to pass national security legislation for you, particularly since there have been these protests that have been consistent over the past year. And, you know, some of them have gotten quite violent uh, to the point where the Hong Kong government refers to them as terrorism. And even if that term is a bit political, there still have been numerous people that have been beat up by the protesters. Uh, There's been there's been rioting. There's been things that have been set on fire. And so the Chinese government felt justified in doing this. Um, And what's also important to note is that the Chinese government maintained uh, two areas outside of Hong Kong's autonomy, which is foreign relations and defense. And so they see this because this is a national security issue. It's a defense issue. So they feel that they have the right to do it. Now, what is very enraging to Hong Kong people is that, again, under the basic law, Article 23 is supposed to be passed by the legislative council. The the chief executive is supposed to introduce it, and then the legislative council is supposed to pass it, and then the NPC is supposed to okay it. And at that point, the National People's Standing Committee could issue a reinterpretation if they didn't like the way the judiciary was handling cases surrounding national security. Um, China, people also are concerned that it doesn't even seem to be going properly through the channels for Annex 3. So it just seems like it's happening in a way that is not entirely constitutional as Hong Kong understands it. But one of the big things that's important to note, and this makes Hong Kong very, very special, is Hong Kong has a common law system in which you know, precedent can be used, the judiciary can interpret the law. And China has a civil system in which it's really the National People's Congress that is supposed to implement law, interpret law, make law. They have a lot of power under the Chinese constitution. And so for that reason, they feel justified in, you know, really having this national security legislation on the books for Hong Kong doing it themselves. And it's, it's, it seems like it's going to be harsher than what was produced in 2003. And then the other big change that really worries a lot of Hong Kongers is that the mainland public security forces are going to be operating in Hong Kong. So before, there was always some rumor around public security forces operating there, Um, Certainly the fact that there were booksellers in 2016 that were taken to the mainland for committing, for violating mainland laws seemed to indicate that public security forces were operating in, in Hong Kong, but they've never been operating out in the open and they've never had the constitutionally mandated authority to deal with Hong Kongers. And so there's a lot of questions among the Hong Kong population about who's actually going to be implementing this national security legislation. Is it going to be local police forces or is it going to be just uh, really implemented through a parallel channel through the Public Security Bureau? 
Well, I guess it's not hard to imagine why people might be worried about some yeah, of those changes. Um, it's concerning. Uh, <clears throat> yeah. So in your di- dissertation, you address um, more specifically, really, Hong Kong's ties to Western governments and their role in the various movements for autonomy since 1997. Maybe you could tell us a little bit more about that and sort of put the recent statements by Secretary of State Mike Pompeo and President Trump about Hong Kong in sort of some context. Well, even before the handover, pro-democratic politicians were actually traveling to the U.S., traveling to the U.K., to the European unions to talk about Hong Kong and Hong Kong's situation. Uh, One prominent activist who frequently did this is named Martin Lee. He was a leader of the Democratic Party back in the 1990s, and he even traveled with the last governor of uh, Hong Kong, Chris Patton, to uh, the United States in April of 1997, just a few months before the handover. So this is this has been activity that's really predated the handover in uh, into Chinese rule, and these activists would frequently go to these Western governments to talk about Hong Kong's situation, particularly in moments of crisis, such as when the judicial autonomy of Hong Kong was being threatened in 1999 after a particularly landmark case um, involving right of abode. Uh, Again, they went when Article 23 legislation was on the table in 2003. They also went uh, to Western governments and during the umbrella movement. Um, And so this is a pretty frequent pattern. But what I find is that Western governments usually do not respond and make strong statements unless it's in their domestic interest. Um, And I think a great example of this is actually the last time that uh, Hong Kong was trying to pass the Article 23 legislation, the national security legislation where there was actually a lot of variation in the response of Britain, the U.S., and the European unions across time. So when the government first came out with the legislation, one of the things that it said is that foreigners could be charged with treason. Foreigners could be charged with treason, sedition, and a number of other crimes under Article 23. And this was Concerning because a lot of foreigners are are Hong Kong permanent residents because all it takes to all it takes to establish permanent residency is being in Hong Kong consistently for a seven year period. So if you live in Hong Kong for seven years, you can become a Hong Kong permanent resident. That meant that a lot of Americans, a lot of British people, a lot of Australians, a lot of Canadians were Hong Kong uh, permanent residents and then also foreign nationals, and so. You know, the pro-democracy activists went to uh, all of these Western governments telling them, hey, this is in the national security legislation. You need to demand that they're being more transparent about it. You need to, you know, help us slow this down and really hold the Hong Kong government accountable. Um, And so what the Hong Kong government did was they didn't change the severity of any of the other clauses except for really taking out that foreign nationals could be charged. Only people of Chinese descent could be charged with treason, et cetera. Um, and it wouldn't apply outside of the Hong Kong territory in the same way. Um, and so interestingly, a lot of these countries then supported the Article 23 legislation for the entirety of the spring up and through SARS. So, I mean, it's amazing the way history rhymes because at the time they were trying to pass the previous 
Article 23 legislation was also the time of the SARS outbreak in China and Hong Kong. And the reason why the SARS outbreak really spread across the globe was because the Chinese government had been um, really clamping down on people getting the word out. And they hadn't properly notified the WHO. They notified the WHO, uh, the World Health Organization, when the virus first uh, became in the population, but they didn't notify them about how far it had spread throughout the population, leading to an outbreak in several countries and hundreds of deaths in Canada. Um, And so once again, a lot of Western governments became concerned about the fact that Hong Kong is the city, this international city where people were traveling through Hong Kong to the rest of the world. And if Hong Kong didn't have good public accountable information, it could actually harm a lot of other countries, you know, uh, through an outbreak like this. So they became very invested in trying to keep Hong Kong autonomous, trying to keep it more so democratic. And so the U.S. made statements about no national security law should be passed until Hong Kong is a democracy. Then we can have these national security laws. So uh, that just shows you the way in which the response of the international community really varied based on their own domestic interests and concerns. And even in the, in the past movement for the anti-extradition bill, uh, Western interests played a really large role, particularly the uh, trade war with the United States. So one of the frequent concerns of China was that Hong Kong was becoming a pawn in the battle between the U.S. and China over trade. And so what it did, that was the whole reason for the initiation of the anti-extradition bill, was the fact that the U.S. had detained the CFO of Huawei, a major company within China, um, and asked Canada to extradite her to the United States. And so just a few months after that happens, the anti-fugitive ordinance is really put out in Hong Kong. And the Hong Kong pro-democracy forces, seeing what is happening, go to the United States and try to make it clear to the U.S., to Canada, to Britain, that you have an extradition treaty with Hong Kong, but you don't have an extradition treaty with China. This is China's way of getting a extradition treaty with all of you without having to actually go through the process of negotiations. And they use this logic to really get a lot of statements, a lot of threats from Western powers over the course of the anti-extradition bill, even culminating in legislation that was passed in the fall of last year by the United States, uh, holding Hong Kong accountable for human rights violations against its people, saying that, you know, Hong Kong's democracy, you know, Hong Kong's autonomy really has to be protected, and even offering to support peaceful protesters should they need it. So certainly, the international uh, environment has played a really big role in structuring exactly what the pro-democracy forces and those that are trying to support autonomy can actually achieve. I see. Um, So maybe you could tell us then a little bit more about what 
the the views of the public in Hong Kong actually are. Well, what's really interesting is that up through 2019, there wasn't a lot of support for more mobilization. They supported the initial umbrella movement for the first two weeks, but then a lot of them really defaulted to supporting the government, particularly the middle class. And this is interesting for a lot of reasons. One of the narratives about the... um, Uh, about the protests from the government's point of view is that these protests are a result of economic inequality and hardship. A lot of young people in Hong Kong have a very hard time buying a flat. Um, Hong Kong is even more expensive than New York, if you can believe it or not. And, you know, there's public housing, but you can be on the rolls for public housing for 10 years So there's just more limited opportunities in Hong Kong. And the way that the Hong Kong government has tried to deal with those concerns is to say, you know, get involved in the per-rebel Delta area, maybe move to Zhuhai, move to Guangzhou, uh, really invest in the larger Chinese uh, business environment. Don't just look to the limited opportunities in Hong Kong. And they've also pointed to the fact that... um, Technically, land is very tight in Hong Kong, which just exacerbates the price situation. Uh, The Hong Kong government owns all of the land, but uh, it also has agreements with a group uh, called the Hung Yi Cook, where indigenous communities who can trace their roots back to the 19th century are allowed to build a small house, um, which keeps a lot of the land kind of tied up because of this agreement that future generations Uh, within these indigenous communities are supposed to be able to build small houses. Um, And then there's also property developers that will hog the land in order to raise its value so that they can sell it at a higher rate. Um, That also contributes. And then 50% of Hong Kong is country park. So a lot of the time, the government says, well, this is all because of the issues with land, inequality, and that's what's really driving these protests. But in fact, if you look at the actual statistics among the population, they really uh, were not very supportive of democratic movements, of the localist movement, all the way through 2019. What changed the gov- what changed the population's mind was the police violence in response to the protests. And there were several key instances of the police violence, not just the June 12th attack on the protesters in front of the Legislative Council, but then... There were attacks um, against protesters in malls in July, uh, police using excessive force against protesters, excessive force against reporters in July, um, and then a really prominent incident, which definitely contributed to the change in public mindset, was that in Yunlong in the New Territories, a group of triad were actually indiscriminately beating up people coming off of the subway anyone who seemed like they were wearing black or might be associated with the protesters. And the police were seen later that night, actually, in some cases, shaking hands with these individuals, um, clearly knowing who they were and not doing anything to arrest them in the moment. So the disparity between the way these um, the police were actually treating protesters the way the police treated the the triad that were going after certain protesters and even people that just look like protesters really angered a lot of the population. And the fact that the government still hasn't set up an independent commission of inquiry really exacerbated the situation. 
And so now um, support for the protesters has been pretty much consistently over 50% of the population in polls. Um, And it's even gone up some in the past few weeks. And the government is incredibly unpopular in Hong Kong. Um, Most do not understand why Carrie Lam, the chief executive, has not uh, actually stepped down. And they think the only reason why she has not stepped down is because the central government simply won't allow her to step down, which exacerbates this fear of mainland control and interference in one country, two systems. Um, Hong Kongers traditionally have really expressed limited support for democratization, but they care very strongly for the rule of law and for the autonomy of Hong Kong. And they see that diminishing when there's so little accountability for the police force and for triad members. I see. So, I mean, you've already mentioned that uh, Hong Kong's fundamental significance is really as a kind of hub of uh, banking and finance and trade with the rest of the world. And I wonder how you could uh, describe the the views of the international business community in Hong Kong. What role well, do they play in all this? it's interesting. Over the past 20 years, the predominant trading partner of Hong Kong has been mainland China. And a lot of the international community uses Hong Kong as a base of operations. Many American, Canadian, European business people will live in Hong Kong and then travel to their factories almost on a daily basis in Shenzhen or Dongguan or elsewhere in mainland China, because it's much more comfortable and chic in some ways to live in Hong Kong um, and then travel into, into mainland China. And you also have better protections of private property in Hong Kong. They like the Hong Kong court system and the way that that operates. So the international business community has always been very concerned about the judicial autonomy of Hong Kong. They've always been concerned that property rights were upheld and that the low tax state was upheld in Hong Kong. And so they've sounded the alarm in certain occasions. Certainly in 2003, the business community did speak out against the Article 23 legislation. They were less vocal when it came to the democracy protests and the umbrella movement. Um, And a lot of actually, particularly the banking industry advised its employees to not take part in the protest. So when it comes to elections, um, there's a lot less support from the international business community than there are for things like judicial autonomy. They did speak out against the article uh, against the extradition treaty because in order to operate in business in China, you have to grease the wheels a little bit. Um, particularly if you've been doing business in China since the 1980s, 1990s, uh, chances are somebody has bribed somebody. I've talked to a lot of American business people who say that they just didn't ask questions about how their businesses were able to find customers. So there's a sort of understanding among a lot of uh, foreign businesses that are operating in Hong Kong or operating in mainland China through Hong Kong that at some point in your past, something might have happened that would have been corrupt. And in the wake of Xi Jinping's anti-corruption campaign in China and the Tigers and Flies campaign, Uh, The fact that you have this anti-extradition treaty, which to a certain extent was designed to extend the Tigers and Flies campaign to Hong Kong, 
that really worried a lot of international business leaders. And it also worried, and this is really important, not just international business leaders, but Chinese business elite who had moved from mainland China to Hong Kong and were concerned about being extradited back to China now that they were Hong Kong permanent residents. Because as Hong Kong permanent residents, they had certain rights that they did not have as mainland Chinese citizens. And so given the way they'd previously operated in mainland China, being extradited was extraordinarily um, concerning. So a lot of uh, business leaders spoke out against the law or at the very least did not voice support for the law. A lot of times what the Hong Kong government is able to do is to get business leaders to voice support for whatever they're doing and, you know, support for new regulations. And in this case, a lot of business leaders did not speak out against the legislation and, you know, probably helped to fund some of the stuff that was happening in the protests. Um, And, you know, the government really couldn't rely on that pro-business coalition to help them out. Um, And I think one of the most notable examples of this was Li Ka-shing, one of the richest people in, he is the richest person in Hong Kong and he's a property developer. Um, He actually put a whole page article in August um, that had this allusion to a Tang Dynasty poem about melons on the vine, where, you know, you take one melon, that's fine. But when you take two, that's too many. And if you take three, then that's going to end up, you know, completely killing the vine and, and really ruin th- ruining things for everybody. And what this, this poem was ambiguous, because you could say that it's to the protesters saying, like, you've gone far enough, you've protested long enough, your point has been made. But at the same time, it could be actually directed at the Hong Kong government saying like, this is too much, like what you are doing, the way you are handling it is too much. And things could really get out of hand from this point on. And the Hong Kong protesters really interpreted it that way as a critique of the government, because uh, Li Ka-shing had used the same poem to critique the previous chief executive, C.Y. Lung, and say that he shouldn't run for a second term. So the messages that were being sent by the business community were ambiguous at best, and that alone was enough to really help Hong Kongers. Um, And then one final thing that I'll share that I think is really interesting about the way that the international business community has interacted with Hong Kong is to support Hong Kong has become a political decision and does determine access to the Chinese market. So for instance, There was the famous case of um, an MBA coach who spoke in favor of the protesters in Hong Kong. And still to this day, like the MBA cannot operate in China right now. Like relations between the MBA and China are uh, really quite tenuous and, you know, games aren't being aired in uh, in mainland China. Um, And, you know, on the other hand, one of the owners of a Starbucks franchise in Hong Kong made a statement against the protesters. And then a lot of their stores ended up being, you know, um, banged in and bashed in during protests. Like there were people that were bashing the windows of the stores during protests because of the fact that they'd made an anti, um, an anti statement against the protesters. The same thing happened to Yoshinoya. Yoshinoya in like, barely can operate in Hong Kong anymore because 
somebody in the company made a statement against the protesters. And so now every time they see a Yoshinoya, they go after the they they go after the store and really try to like break the glass and you know deface the property. Interesting. So how do you think the whole situation is going to play out? I mean, do you think that businesses are going to leave, the expat community will leave, or uh, will the Beijing government sort of back off because this is not something they really want to mess around well, with in the Well, I think long it depends in part on what the U.S. ends up doing. Um, clearly, the statements that the Trump administration has made suggest that the Hong Kong America, the America Hong Kong Act of 1992, which gave Hong Kong a lot of privileges, a lot of um, uh, a lot of economic privileges and access to strategic commodities. It, from his statement, it seems like that may all of those privileges may end up going away entirely. Um, if that's the case, um, I think that that'll scare the international business community a lot more and lead to more of an exit of capital from Hong Kong. That said, one of the other things that's interesting to note is that the uh, Hong Kong dollar has actually been really, really stable over the past week since this uh, legislation was voted on by the MPC. And it seems like the mainland Chinese strategy is just to invest more and more money in Hong Kong. And so they seem to think that what they can do is just bring in more and more capital from the you know the mainland market and that will make up for whatever international capital is lost. Um, that said, I I I worry that that strategy will ultimately not work for Hong Kong and will lead to further economic problems because um, you know they've really relied on tourism, they've really relied on their financial services. And a lot of that is still so connected to the international community that I think Hong Kong will continue to experience the economic slump that it has since these protests began. Um, and so I hope that the, the mainland government, um, you know, has a light footprint with this, this national security legislation. They've promised and the Hong Kong government has promised to implement this uh, new legislation narrowly to just go after the more violent protesters, just the people that are rioting, that are beating up other people. Um, there's some talk that there are, are bombs that are being built. So if it was just targeted at those elements, then I think a lot of the international investment would really stay. But if it begins to be targeted more broadly to the majority of the pro-democratic camp, then I suspect that we'll see a lot more exit of capital and Hong Kong will continue to be in a very terrible slump. So this last question is uh, motivated to some degree by events here in the United States. Uh, I'm curious, you know, what role the, the COVID-19 pandemic has played in the protest situation in Hong Kong. Of course, people here are very concerned that the protests are going to generate new outbreaks. Um, and I wonder whether there's a similar problem Well, you know, this is actually really interesting because it depends on the point in time. At first, in January, when COVID-19 
really was coming to the forefront of Hong Kong's consciousness, COVID-19 was actually a motivator for continued mobilization. So January, early February, Hong Kongers were mobilizing a lot, trying to get the the Hong Kong government to close the border with mainland China. Um, And so at that point in time, it was actually quite beneficial to the protests. But then once the Hong Kong government actually began to ban uh, gatherings to really limit social interaction, um, it did curtail protest activity quite significantly. Um, And what's interesting is that the Hong Kong government has relaxed its regulations. And so it now seems to be using the COVID regulations strategically to try to block uh, anti-government activity. So for instance, the June 4th vigil against Tiananmen Square was, um, was banned because it was a large gathering of people. So they said, like, you know, it's a large gathering. You know, we cannot have something that could spread COVID-19. So we can't have this vigil this year. And yet it allowed at the same time, um, you know, people to go to the beach, people to go into malls, you know, other types of social gatherings were not really disallowed. So it seemed like it was using these regulations specifically against, um, you know, the protests. And so people still gathered. I think the view that the the government was using them strategically against protests meant that thousands of people still showed up last night to uh, go to Victoria Square Park, where the, the vigil usually happens, and still hold candles and still have the event. Like the event wasn't as crowded as it usually is, but there were still a ton of people in that space. Um, and so I think what's similar between what's happening in the George Floyd protests and then what's happening in Hong Kong is that a lack of trust in the government leads to people, you know, uh, doing behaviors that are not necessarily going to stop the spread of the virus. Um, you know, there was some point and there at some point in time, the protesters have been talking about, well, we can all do individual protests. Maybe we can all just take pictures of ourselves holding candles or we can just have mini protests throughout the city. But when the government clamped down on even like a mini protest or a mini vigil where just a few people were gathered, they just decided, you know, well, clearly this is politically motivated. Um, you know, we're just going to do what we want to do and go to Victoria Park and be in a large, be in a large crowd. Um what I would also say I think is interesting when you bring up the protest with George Floyd is I want to briefly say something about the role that they're playing in Hong Kong's protests in this national security law, because China sees what's happening in the United States as a giant propaganda opportunity for them. Um, all the time now, pro-government outlets are talking about the way in which the U.S. police force has oppressed Hong- American people and how it's actually worse than what the police did in the protests last year. And I can say from, you know, observing police behavior last year during my fieldwork, they're right. The police behavior in the United States is more harsh um, and has been consistently more harsh than the behavior of the Hong Kong police force. And, you know, Beijing didn't talk about the military getting involved for a month after the protests, unlike um, President Trump brought it up just this week. And, you know, there wasn't a curfew. So there's a lot of things that are very different about the Hong Kong protests. And so Beijing is using it to basically say, like, you know, see, obviously, we're not being that coercive. Um, this law is really going to just affect the really bad apples. We're not going to go after everybody. 
and you should believe us because look at what's happening in the United States. So I think, um, you know, it's, it's interesting to see the way in which uh, not only does the international community pressure the Hong Kong, the Hong Kong government and the and Beijing to change its policies, but it also provides excuses to the Hong Kong government and Beijing to implement coercive policies. Wow, that's very interesting. Thanks so much for your insights about uh, Hong Kong and uh, for bringing things home in that kind of comparative way. So we have a sense of, you know, how these things may uh, be similar and different. Uh, But that's it for today's episode of International Horizons. I want to thank Jessica Malbacher of the PhD program in political science at the City University of New York's Graduate Center for her insights about the situation in Hong Kong today. And I also want to thank Christo Voinov for helping on the technological side. This is John Torpy of the Ralph Bunch Institute for International Studies saying, see you next time on International Horizons. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.